What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. And you know, Goodnight Moon, that's one of our favorite books uh, around here. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead this hour. It's been calm, maybe too calm in the market lately. There's been lots of drama with individual stocks, but overall, we've been enjoying a pretty low drama rally. Can that last into the summer months? We'll ask. Plus, shares of Pinterest, Twitter, and Peloton, all struggling as investors turn to reopening stocks. But other pandemic plays like Amazon and Google are still performing pretty well. Will Clorox join them on a new higher plateau or does it face a post-pandemic cliff? And while some enjoy hand-picking meme stocks, others prefer the steadiness and predictability of self-driving money. We're going to speak with the CEO of Wealthfront about the best ways for new investors to play the market as rival Robinhood comes under tough criticism this weekend. But we start with the markets and Dom Chu is here to kick things off as always. Hi, Dom. I think our family, my daughter at least, very much a hungry caterpillar type person. So good night, Moon and Hungry Caterpillar. We're all about kids' books here at CNBC. Anyway, the Dow Industrials up almost 300 points. We were up roughly call it 346 points at the highs of the day. So we are, have been tilting higher for the most part for the blue chip index. The S&P 500 up about one third of 1%, just a hair below 4,200 the last trade there. And the NASDAQ composite underperforming off by about one half of 1%, 13,910 the last trade there. A lot more underperformance has been happening in certain parts of the market, specifically today with regard to many of the electric vehicle names. Check out Tesla, Fisker, Nikola Corporation, just some of those names, some negativity around sentiment, some regulatory concerns in key markets around the world driving some of these types of names. The one, say, the one I would say that is standing out is Neo, the Chinese EV automaker, has managed to eke out a one-half of 1% gain. Still, though, watch those electric vehicle makers. And then the stock of the day so far today. Would you believe it if I told you that, yes, Avis Budget Group, the car rental giant, is now higher than it was at any point pre-pandemic? It's also, believe it or not, a record high in trading today. It's off about 1% off the session high. Still, though, Avis Budget Group catching some tailwinds because... People are renting cars more during the pandemic. People will be renting cars more during the summer months that they travel. And guess what? They sell used cars, too. And guess what? Prices have surged. Yes, used cars. Avis budget. I highlight this, Kelly, because over the last five years, up 277 percent. It's up about 140 percent on a year to date basis. And Kelly, they report earnings after today's closing bell. Back over to you. <laughs> that is quite the buildup, uh, Don. Thank you very much. Markets overall have enjoyed a low drama stock rally so far this year. The Dow and the S&P are coming off their third straight month of gains, while the Nasdaq and the Russell 2000 have continued their winning streaks from last fall. But is the calm about to give way to a choppier summer? CNBC senior markets commentator Michael Santoli is here with a closer look. You know, uh, Kelly, there is certainly precedent for this kind of setup leading to a little bit of a pause or a, a pullback. But this market has actually refused to do that. That's been the case for a while. I have some context here historically in terms of the uh, June 30th to now. And what I want to draw your attention to is that little bounce, the choppiness, the anxiety around the election that gave way to this very, very orderly uptrend. Uh, it really has been pretty unflappable. Now compare it 
to what we saw from 2012 into 2013. That was another uh, election period. And you'll see same kind of thing, a little bat of anxiety around election time and then a very, very low drama rally. This continues all the way through to the end of 2013. One of the strongest years in memory It was up 30 percent. The S&P finally the last election before this one, 2016, very similar pattern. Of course, the, the, the issues were different. The anxieties were different in detail, but it's had the same kind of market effect. And you'll see this very same low volatility up to now. Can we expect exactly the same kind of rerun, which would imply maybe no net progress over the summer and then a strong finish to the year? Maybe. It's a bull market. It could do anything. Uh, but I would point out this has been a much more dramatic this time around Uh, pace of increase in the market. So maybe we have a little more payback to give. But uh, the actual rhythm and behavior of the market, Kelly, is not giving you much reason to think there's stress building up in the system. And there's two interesting things about this. One is just, you know, everything that's been going on with GameStop and all the frothy uh, aspects of the market, as you might want to call them. But the other two are kind of the things that are drying up. I mean, at some point, we talk about the liquidity that's going to be coming back out of the market as boosted jobless benefits and all yeah. those things. And I mean, that you wonder kind of if that it, it just is the reopening trade in general, as people start going outside again, losing interest in the stock market, does right. that change the dynamic? Well, well, here's the interesting part is that those parts of the market have already had their comeuppance, arguably. Uh, if you look at not specifically GameStop, but a lot of the meme stocks, the SPACs, the Teslas, the ARK Invest type stocks, the cloud stocks, the solar stocks are all 20% off their highs, and yet the overall market has held right. in there. But I agree with you. We're dealing with peak acceleration, peak growth, maybe peak savings, all these things that fed this 90% gain over 13 months. Exactly. Maybe uh, we've gotten most of it. You know, they're telling us we're supposed to look in camera and not at each other, Mike, but this oh, is, we, can't, we can't pass <laughs> up this opportunity, here, right? I mean, so when, rare. Exactly. When's the last time? Speaking of getting it's back to been, normal. Uh, over a year. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Mike, thank <laughs> you very much, sir. Right. Appreciate it. Uh, can this drama-free rally keep going? For more, let's welcome in Tracy McMillian. She's head of global asset allocation strategy at Wells Fargo Investment Institute. And Simeon Hyman is global investment strategist at ProShares Advisors. It's great to have you both both here. Tracy, I'll start with you. I mean, do you try to get into the game of guessing what kind of choppiness we might be in for in the stock market? Or or how would you recommend investors be positioned right now? Yeah, so typically what we look for is things like earnings and the underlying fundamentals of the economy, both of which are really strong right now. And granted, we've had a great start to the year. So if investors are overweight things like equities because they've been doing so well, then yes, you could go ahead and take some profits here and rebalance. But, you know, into what though, Tracy? I mean, if you if you take profits in the market, what are you supposed to buy real estate at all time highs, bonds at basically all time highs? You know, do you go into cash crypto? I mean, where are we rebalancing too. Yeah, so you would be rebalancing to those areas of your portfolio where you're underweight. However, tactically, we do like equities over fixed income. Mm -hmm. So a tactical allocation um, should be higher to things like large caps, small caps, emerging markets. Emerging markets haven't done as well this year. So that might be a place to go. All right. Emerging markets, although you, know, you kind of have to tread carefully there, Simeon, because they can have great years, they can have awful years. And I think on average, I'm not even sure what their returns are like relative to U.S. stocks. But I, I take the point that you have to kind of look at anything that's not at an all-time high right now because, again, look at commodities. I mean, Simeon, where is something that's not at an all-time high right now, I guess, other than the, the high-value basket that Mike mentioned a few moments ago? 
Yeah, if you look at the market broadly, we're trading at 23 times consensus for next for 2021. But the earnings this season are running at 25% higher than consensus. So that sounds like enough because that'll get multiples down to around 20 by the end of the year, which makes a lot of sense. Now, look, there's nothing dirt cheap these days. But if you look, there are, we think, a couple of opportunities. One, consumer discretionary is, of course, red hot from the spending of the consumer. Those earnings surprises are coming in at 60 percent over consensus. But there we think the opportunity is to tilt towards the online retailers. Now, we know part of that reason is the incessant trend towards higher market share. But let's think about the inflation pressures. There's a big offset there. Look at the Amazon results. The costs are coming down for distribution. So you have a big advantage there if we do have inflation creep up a little bit. Interesting. So a couple of different uh, ways to play these markets. Again, a tricky time with so many asset classes uh, at or near all-time highs. Thank you both. Tracy McMillian, Simeon Hyman, we appreciate it. We've got some news coming in on Amazon and the NFL. Let's get over to Julia Borson. What's going on, Julia? Well, Kelly, Amazon and the NFL had previously announced that they were going to be teaming up for Thursday night football, starting with the 2023 season. Now they've just announced that they're going to be accelerating that, and Amazon Prime Video will become the exclusive home of Thursday night football, starting with the 2022 season. So they're bringing this digital distribution of these Thursday night games a year earlier up to 2022. Guys, back over to you. All right, Julie, a couple of observations here, which are so fascinating. So this is exclusive, meaning if I want to watch a Thursday night game, and I understand they're not always the best games, but they're working on that. But I, I have to have my Amazon Prime app in order to watch that starting in that season. Is that right? Yes. So starting, so the 2021 season, that's the season that starts this fall, will be the last for Thursday Night Football on Fox. And they will continue to produce the um, NFC package on Sunday afternoon games. But Thursday Night Football will be on Amazon Prime. But remember, so many people now use Amazon Prime. It has 200 million subscribers to Amazon Prime. So this is really a broadly accessible format now. Well, um, really interesting to see how they're going to be able to use this to draw over new subscribers to Prime. Yes, and I totally take your point that everybody kind of has exposure, or most people do kind of have exposure, but that doesn't mean it's always the easiest thing to find and watch. So, and I, I'm curious as well, if you would kind of go back to what's been happening with Roku and YouTube this past week, where they're in a huge spat. I mean, these are where the new spats are happening between carriers and the networks that are potentially making YouTube inaccessible on a platform like Roku. So what happens if Roku and Amazon get into a spat in the future, right? I mean, it just feels like this is kind of, we've rerun the script, but now with all these new apps and this whole new way of accessing all of this, all of these uh, games. Well, look, I think this is a very different situation than what's going on between Roku and YouTube TV. I think it's very important to know that they are talking about YouTube TV, which is the subscription service to get live TV through YouTube. They're not talking about watching regular ad-supported videos on YouTube. I think Amazon is going to make sure that if you are a Prime subscriber, they are going to let you know that you have football to watch on Thursday night on their platform. They're going to feature it. They're going to make sure it's easy to find. Yes, it's an interesting time when you have all of these content platforms and different distribution mechanisms. You can watch Amazon Prime Video via Fire Stick, which is very similar to Roku's devices. You have connected TVs. 
ultimately, these platforms like Roku and YouTube, in a way, they're frenemies. They need each other. They need to figure out how to work together. And I think ultimately we will see some sort of compromise between Roku and that YouTube TV app, that conflict that we you, you were just referring yeah. to, Kelly. No, this is such a sign of the times, isn't it? Uh, it's fascinating. Julia, thanks for bringing it to us. Just want to mention Amazon shares are still down about 2%, but we'll keep an eye on them this hour. Coming up, avoiding the trading roller coaster. It's one reason Wealthfront CEO Andy Raycliffe says young investors choose his platform. He joins us next with more on that, on opening investments up to crypto, and on the ESG trend. Plus, why this stock is being called an underappreciated reopening trade. The name and how much upside one analyst expects from here. It's ahead. Stay with us. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Electricity. A big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back. Investing platform Wealthfront is expanding its offerings to include a wider range of ETFs and even some crypto. The company is hoping the roller coaster ride we've seen with names like GameStop this year will make investors look instead for what they're calling self-driving money. Kate Rooney joins me now with more on this and a very special guest. Hi, Kate. Hey, Kelly. Wealthfront has really been known for more passive investment vehicles, also known as robo-investing. The company announced some new features that give clients a little more say over what goes into those portfolios. First, it's planning to let clients invest in crypto. Wealthfront is also letting clients edit existing portfolios by adding or deleting ETFs and build portfolios from scratch. It's also letting clients choose to invest in specific categories like socially responsible investments, for example, and technology. Joining us now to talk about that in a CNBC exclusive, Andy Ratcliffe, co-founder and CEO of Wealthfront. He's also a founder and former partner at venture capital firm Benchmark. Andy, great to see you. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Of course, we got to start with what sounds like a big change to Wealthfront's strategy. In the past, you've really described this company as more self-driving money, kind of a set-it-and-forget-it investment vehicle. Has that thesis changed? Uh, should we expect Wealthfront to move more into active investing that we've seen a lot of this year? Heavens no. Nothing has really changed. We've just uh, allowed our clients to express their values more. You know, people want to be able to control things uh, even if they don't control them. So the only change is we let them make edits and make changes. 
but everything is still automated. We still reinvest your dividends in a tax efficient and automated way. We rebalance your portfolio and we apply tax loss harvesting, which creates value that is a multiple of the fee that we charge. So uh, all we do is give you a little bit more say. I've got to ask you about Warren Buffett's comments at Berkshire Hathaway's meeting on Saturday. If you haven't seen them, he essentially called the current investing frenzy a casino. He called out Robin Hood by name, saying that it's driving <laughs> casino-like trading activity. I mean, what did you make of that? And do you agree about some of the trading behavior and what's gone on with some of your competitors? Well, sure. But we see this about every 10 years. You know, we saw this in the late 1990s with the Internet bubble. We saw it around the time of the financial crisis, and now we're seeing it again. Whenever the market goes up by a sizable percentage in a short period of time, it drives the creation of of day trading. And we know that that never ends well. And every new generation has to learn this lesson for themselves. They're not going to take the advice of their parents or older people who uh, were hurt by this. They have to learn for themselves. So all I see is the same. History might not repeat itself, but it sure does rhyme. Andy, it's Kelly here, and and thanks for joining us. Just for those who say, you know, if you pitch yourself as kind of the safer investment vehicle, you've got the bumper lane, so to speak, um, but you're going or or you're still allowing access into crypto. Just kind of explain that move, what you're uh, allowing there and why you describe that as different from kind of the the other casino-like platforms and trades that are coming under criticism from the likes of Berkshire Hathaway? That's a great question. So our target audience uh, is uh, millennials who save. So people who are 25 to 40, we also have a bunch of, of Gen Z, but we, because we're only software based, we do everything in software. There's no advisor to talk to, although we do have outstanding customer service. Uh, it really appeals to a younger audience. The younger audience we know has a great interest in cryptocurrency. So we're different from others in that we're a fiduciary. The others who enable casinos are not. So what does that mean? Well, number one, we tell you about the risk that you're likely to incur by adding uh, specific investments, be they ETFs or crypto. And number two, we're going to limit the amount of crypto that you have in your portfolio because we want this to be a responsible investment. Hmm. Andy, it's Kate again. A question for you about GameStop. I mean, we've seen this huge rising tide of new money into the markets. Was what happened in January with the GameStop frenzy and that short squeeze good for Wealthfront's business? Long term, yes. Short term, no. Uh, And the reason that I say that is short term, it creates a lot of excitement and and a drive for other people to day trade. I think that Robinhood's growth rate increased very significantly as a result of all that. You know, having been in the venture business for over 25 years, one of the lessons that I've learned that is uh, surprising to many is that whenever there is news that people might perceive as bad about a tech company, it actually increases the growth rate because it increases the awareness. Now, as people try day trading and as they don't succeed, then they are likely to try something more responsible. It's sort of like uh, the person that you wouldn't date in high school becomes a hell of a lot more attractive when you're in your mid to late 20s. 
Andy, well, thank you. <laughs> we'll, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, but thanks so much for joining us, Andy Radcliffe, co-founder and CEO of Wealthfront. Kelly, I'll send it right back to you. And Kate, thanks for bringing uh, that to us. Andy, thank you so much. Coming up, it's the epic core battle that could change the way Apple does business, why this matters to investors, and whether Apple can prevail next. Apple's trading just about a percent higher right now. Plus, Berkshire Hathaway Vice Chair Charlie Munger shared his thoughts on Bitcoin. And let's just say he didn't hold back his contempt. What he said and whether he's got a point coming up in just a moment. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magirite is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Welcome back to The Exchange. Pretty strong day in the market. We're about 50 points off the high. The Dow's up 270. That happened after the ISM manufacturing report. The first key piece of data this month came in below expected, but still fairly strong. Order backlogs were the highest on record. In fact, uh, the S&P hanging on to about a one-third of a percent gain. The Nasdaq is down by just about that much. And here are some of the individual movers this hour. Uh, we have some of the uh, meme stocks, if you'd like to call them, the leaders in the Reddit ticker mentioning Microvision, Clover Health, and GameStop. Well, those are all lower right now. Microvision's down about 10%. Also got our eye on Virgin Galactic, which is deep in the red after the company said it would restate some past financial results in the wake of recent comments by the SEC. It's down about 8%. Going the other way of the retail stocks today, higher across the board, led by Gap, up about 8% right now. Macy's, Capri Holding, and Foot Locker also seeing some nice gains. One retail that's not enjoying that is Estee Lauder. It's the worst performer in the S&P right now. The company just missed estimates for third quarter sales, hurt by sluggish demand for some of its premium products. EL shares, which have been one of the strongest performers in the market the last several years, are down about 8%. Over to Rahel Solomon now for a CNBC News update. Rahel. Hi, Kelly. Here's what's happening at this hour. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo says that most capacity restrictions are going away across New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut on May 19th. Restrictions will, however, remain for outdoor stadiums, but the capacity limits will go up to 33 percent. Social distancing rules will also stay in place. And see how the latest easings are getting more workers back in the office tonight on the news with Shepard Smith. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell slamming President Biden's infrastructure and domestic spending plan. He's also criticizing tax increases meant to pay for the plan. I don't think there'll be any Republican support. None. Zero for the $4.1 trillion grab bag, which has infrastructure in it, but a whole lot of other stuff. And south of Miami, a large brush fire has torched 5,500 acres. It's also getting close to one of only two roads connecting the Florida Keys to the mainland. You're now up to date. Kelly, I'll send it back to you. Yikes, that's something to watch. Rahel, thank you. Speaking of things to watch, an epic court battle kicks off. The underappreciated reopening trade and tickets to Twitter. All that and more in today's Rapid Fire right after this.
Welcome back. Let's catch you up on a couple stories that should be on your radar right now. It is time for Rapid Fire. Here to break down the headlines, we welcome Julia Borston back, CBC.com tech editor Steve Kovac, and Steve Grasso, who is director of institutional sales for Stuart Frankel and a fast money trader. Welcome, everybody. Want to start with Apple, the legal showdown that everyone from Wall Street to Silicon Valley is watching. Epic Games and Apple finally square off in court today. The heart of the case is that 30% fee Apple collects on purchases made through the App Store. I think that's just year one. I think year's two throughout are looking for Kovac to not. Anyway, remember, Fortnite was kicked out for installing its own payment system to dodge these surcharges. Its parent company, Epic, is accusing Apple of anti-competitive behavior, and this ruling could have massive consequences for the digital economy. Julia, when are we going to know? How long could this take? I think we expect the trial to take about three weeks. The opening statements are underway right now. We expect to hear from Tim Sweeney, the CEO of of Epic and the instigator of this lawsuit later today. And it's going to be really interesting to see how this unfolds, Kelly. I'm just looking at the headlines coming in right now from the opening statements. Apple saying that they're accusing Epic, saying that rather than investing in innovation, Epic invested in lawyers, PR and policy consultants in an effort to get all of the benefits Apple provides without paying. So you have those barbs thrown there. And then you have Epic really trying to get to all of the antitrust concerns about Apple right now. Steve Kovac, here's my question. Remember the whole Microsoft thing back in the 90s when they said, look, if you buy a computer that has Windows, you can't be, I forget exactly, you can't be required to use Internet Explorer or the pre-install, you know, you have to let other browsers compete. Well, under that basis, why shouldn't Apple be told, look, just because you have an iPhone doesn't mean you can only offer the App Store. You can offer the Google Store. You can offer all these other stores that might have different pay structures. Now, I think Apple says it's for security reasons that it wants to own that relationship, but will that argument hold? Yeah, it's not just the security reasons uh, part of it, Kelly. It's also that Apple truly believes that antitrust law here is on its side. Epic is going to have to uh, prove consumer harm, which means prices going up on games like Epic and other kind of services and apps. And they think that's going to be really hard for them to prove. On the other side, you have Epic coming out today making this claim that the margins that Apple makes in the App Store are in like the high 70%, meaning this thing is massively profitable. And if they really are investing so much into security and all that kind of stuff in the App Store, they're still raking in tons of profits and squeezing out competition. I think those are the two key things to watch here. Absolutely. And that's why you can see there's this whole ecosystem uh, is at stake in in which way this goes. So, Steve Grasso, do you have to have an opinion on the outcome here to own the stock? Is this even going to you know, I could actually see a case for, hey, if this doesn't go Apple's way, it does change the value of these shares because the App Store is such an important contributor to profit margins, services growth, all of those kinds of things. Uh, The the short answer, Kelly, is yes. And I, (laughs) I am a shareholder in Apple. But when you really look at it, I think it, I think price action tells you a lot. They had great earnings and then the stock didn't do anything. It, it should have taken out that 145 level. It didn't do that. But I think the other key point is that no matter what happens, you, you just asked Julia how long this should take. Julia said about three weeks, but what she, what she meant was that was the straightforward question. Three weeks. <laughs> What is it really going to take? Either side, no matter who wins, is going to appeal. This is going to drag out forever. The bottom line is, if it's too onerous, if it's too much money for apps to be on the, in the app store, then they shouldn't be there. Then they wouldn't be there if they couldn't turn a profit. So at the end of the day, the cost structure usually frees itself up. So I think Apple, 
while could be greedy, all these companies are greedy. Epic has its own, uh, its own agenda to this. I'm staying long Apple. I think ultimately this price action in Apple will resolve itself okay. and the stock will be much higher. Julia, quick last word. Well, look, I, I think that everyone has an agenda here is absolutely right. Epic wants to pay closer to 12% fees instead of 30% fees. If Apple wins, it's business as usual. If Epic wins, we'll see some sort of compromise in some sort of fee structure that's more than 12% and less than 30 Well, that would be a relatively good outcome compared with, hey, you can go get it off the Google store, which might be uh, another option. All right, let's move along. Uh, Wells Fargo is calling the real real the real deal. The bank is saying that when asked which of the reopening names is underappreciated, they see only one. And the real real is that one stock has doubled. Look at that over just the past year, but it's still underperforming the broader retail ETF, the ticker XRT. Wells is giving the online luxury consignment platform an overweight rating and a $35 price target. Analysts saying this may be the last underappreciated reopening story in their coverage space. Steve Grasso, would you buy it? I think they make, I think this, they make a lot of great tail for the stock. I could see how this could all play out. Obviously, this is a recovery story. There was nothing to be had uh, as far as 2020 was concerned. 2021 could be that reopening element that you need. It's all about supply. But I think the, the uh, environment has changed dramatically. I'd have to see this one play out, Kelly, mm-hmm. before I put uh, money to work in this, in this laggard becoming a leader approach. Steve Kovac, you got an opinion on uh, these consignment platforms that... I've dabbled. I'm going to save my comments for Julie, but I've dabbled in them a little bit myself. And let me say, I'm not making a a bunch of money. Clearly, they must be. What do you think? Kelly, I think it's hilarious that you're asking me if I use consignment shops. I want to know. I need to know. Yeah, I I definitely do not. But it it does kind of play. And I know I know Julia is going to agree with me on this. It does kind of play into this idea that people are stuck at home, this creator economy idea, selling their own stuff. Create. I, I read a story in The Times this week about people. Um, repurposing garbage found on the streets of Manhattan okay. and selling it that way too. So these really cool, like creative pe- ways people are making money during the pandemic. And I guess real, real capitalizes on that. Go ahead, Julia. I, I well, I have to disagree, Steve, because I think on one hand, the real, real capitalizer be- people being stuck at home and cleaning out all their closets. But I also think that it is a reopening play because there are all these fascinating statistics about how the real, real is benefiting from brick and mortar stores. It has a handful of brick and mortar stores. They're planning on opening up about 10 other smaller stores all around the country. And the data shows that when people go into these stores, they can sign more and then they also shop more. So the stores function as really valuable marketing. And it's not just about what people do in their second home. Julia, here's what's interesting to me. So, you know, we've had some nice, I've worn some nice dresses here on, on CNBC. Sometimes I don't fit into them anymore. So I went to go put a bunch of them on this platform. <laughs> and, I, you know, Zach Posen dresses that cost hundreds and hundreds of dollars. I'm looking through my sales history here. You know, I sold it for $41. My commission was $20.63. I'm a chump if I'm part Why would I ever part with a, a several hundred dollar dress for $20? I, I, to me, I wonder about the supply argument they, in the long run. What's the real incentive for me to, to part with that? I'd rather just donate well, look, it. 
The pricing really varies from brand to brand, um, and it also really depends on demand for those products. They use a lot of artificial intelligence al- algorithms to figure out how to price things, also how worn the product is, Kelly. So I don't know if you're <laughs> if you're wearing your dresses hard before you're trying to sell them, but I think that there's so much variability there. And I also have seen that the more that you sell, the better your percentage take is of yeah, the items. So I, know. I think there, there are a lot of incentives to get you to consign your whole closet. I'm up to 50 55% and it's still a joke. I mean, Jason Wu sold for $70. I got 35, 35 bucks. I mean, I could make something with that fabric and, and get a better deal. So I, that to me, that's what I'm watching is, the, is that kind of supply availability. Now, all right, here's one that was 116. That was a good month. All right, we'll move along. Over the weekend, Berkshire Hathaway Vice Chair Charlie Munger had some strong words about cryptocurrencies. Let's listen. Of course, I hate the Bitcoin success. And I don't welcome a currency that's so useful and to kidnappers and extortionists and so forth, nor do I like just shuffling out a few extra billions and billions and billions of dollars to somebody who just invented a new financial product out of thin air. So I think I should say modestly that I think the whole damn development is disgusting and contrary to the interests of civilization. Steve Grasso, do you disagree? Well, I, I think the, the world probably disagrees or to, some, to a certain extent or critical mass uh, disagrees. I understand what he's saying completely. And I think face value, I think he's, he's uh, the general direction is probably shared with a lot, but he's trying to move a mountain of a stone uphill now. You have to look at the cryptocurrencies that have some sort of supply limitations. Bitcoin is one of them. Ethereum is another one. You have to stick with the with the quote unquote household names. Kelly, did you ever think we'd think of crypto as household names? Well, it's becoming that way. And I think Charlie and I think Warren have to think of it in other ways. And trust me, every time I think I get my head around this, there's always a new fold to it, mm-hmm. but it's coming and, it, and it's not stopping. That's well said. Steve Kovac, just a word on this before we move, on, move along. The numbers don't lie. Bitcoin is all these crypto stocks or, or cryptocurrencies are going way up. Doesn't matter what Charlie thinks. People oh, are making money on it. I don't, but people, that's exactly, Charlie will probably hear that and go, yeah, that's exactly my point. You know, there we've seen, things can go yeah, to the exactly. moon, but then yeah. they, you know, but I think that's a whole discussion to have another time. Since you three are all here, I do want to talk a little bit of Twitter. I'm going to call an audible on this one because this was a late breaking headline today. The stock is lower today, but it's also down 19% over the past week. Uh, it's about two and a half percent lower on the session. And this is after we learned that Elliott Management is reportedly taking advantage of this dip to buy 200 million shares. That's according to Bloomberg. And this was after another fund manager, Arks Kathy Wood, said she continues to stick by the stock and she's bought over 1.3 million shares. Also of interest, Twitter now says it will open its spaces to every user and let users sell tickets to live audio chats. Julia, what's what's the big game plan here? Look, I think this is a really big deal that Twitter is now saying we are not just a platform for people communicating via text. We want to be an audio platform as well. Twitter is allowing people to take the conversations that they're already having and extending extend them into this live audio world. There's a lot of potential there. And I think the fact that they are going to be allowing their users to sell tickets 
opens up new revenue streams down the road. They've talked about having paid subscription newsletters. Now they're going to have paid tickets to get into an audio space. This means that Twitter is very serious about diversifying its revenue stream, which is something that is of great interest to investors. Steve Kovac, is it going to work? It's well, first of all, to Julia's point, it's not just about uh, diversifying. They made a goal to double users and double revenue within the next couple of years. Mm. And we're going to see a lot of stuff and a lot of experimentation here trying on it. So even if will this work? I don't know. It's going to depend on if they can get some really good influential people to start charging tickets. Would you you know, maybe people will pay to hear an Elon Musk on Twitter spaces. But will they pay to hear Steve Kovac? Probably not. I would. So it's going to really you have to have some. <laughs> you have a higher opinion of me than I do of myself, I guess. Um, but I, I, I really I really think it's going to take some superstars to like really uh, make it take off. Look what happened to Clubhouse. It didn't really take off until Elon Musk joined until Bill Gates joined, they're going to have to have someone of of that level start charging, maybe a a musical artist or something like that in order for it to really take off. And if not, they have tons of other plans, newsletters, other creator concepts that they can start charging for. And they're 33 percent off the high, Steve uh, Grasso, the shares are. And and obviously, you know, supporting innovation is a good thing. But I think there's a difference between the kind of copycat innovation we've seen from Facebook coming from a position of strength to fend off any potential competitors and Twitter's, which to me feels a little bit like a position of weakness or desperation. I mean, you can't be all things to all people. I'm not even sure Twitter itself is a core product anymore. What do you think? I, I, I agree with you. I tend to agree with you. I, I've owned the stock in the past. I'm out of the stock currently. I think it, it's, it's obvious their number one revenue is advertising services. So you need to get those eyeballs on that website constantly, continuously, and I'm with you. If you can't get them on when it's free, Hmm. it's very difficult to get them on when they're paying. But I do believe uh, that there is uh, maybe a want to have some sort of a talent get on there and have a free service, have a paid service. The more eyeballs, the better, more advertising dollars. But I think you're right. It seems like it's coming from a desperate place. I know. I say all this and I do have it up right now. But, you know, I, we are in the news business. I just think, you know, we're a little bit unique in our, in our reliance on the site. Thank you guys all for now. Really appreciate it. Julia Borston, Steve Kovac and Steve Grasso. Still ahead, oil is climbing today and it's up nearly 33% so far this year. One energy investor, though, is now making a big bet on clean energy. We'll tell you who and why that's next. And don't forget, you can watch us live using the CNBC app anytime, day or night. We're back in a moment. Welcome back to The Exchange. It's been a good year for oil. It's up more than 30 percent already as the economy starts to recover from the pandemic. It's trading at just about $65 a barrel right now. Despite this rally, Pickering Energy Partners is betting on clean energy. The Houston energy firm is launching Merge today. It's a company to help fleets convert from gas to electric-powered vehicles. Joining me now with more is Dan Pickering, the chief investment officer at Pickering Energy Partners. And, Dan, it's good to see you again. Welcome. Hi, Kelly. Thank you. Are you throwing in the towel? I mean, is this basically a, you know, my, my lifeblood is no longer going to work in an ESG world, you know, and, and off we go? I mean, it, it, or is this just an opportunistic way to defensively make sure that this kind of disinvestment doesn't hurt you guys in the future? Yeah, Kelly, it's a good question. I think uh, the world's looking for lower carbon transportation, and, and we're trying to, to feed that with this creation of, of Merge, which, as as you mentioned, 
helps uh, electric uh, electrify fleets. Um, oil's going to be around for a very long time, decades. And so we'd like to sort of be at the intersection of that, pun intended. And so, you know, we think oil's a great place to be. We think electric vehicles and, and electrification is a great place to be. And so we're trying to have our foot in both worlds. And I want to ask one more question about this, but it's basically to get at this concept of if you're an energy investor, you know, is it like tobacco, you know, when after the 90s, after these mega settlements, you know, companies like Altria still were pretty good investments for the few that were involved? I mean, can it still do well or do you think it really might not do well because it's just not going to enjoy fund flows for the foreseeable future? Well, I think traditional energy is clearly out of favor, but, but the cash flows are coming up. You mentioned oil, 65 bucks a barrel. Companies are making a lot of money. Exxon and Chevron had good quarters. The stocks are the best performing this year. So I think as, as the cash flows come back, so will the investors. And so I think traditional energy is going to be a fine place to make money. Harder over the next 20 years, but uh, cyclically looks pretty good over the next two, three, four, five, six quarters. Yeah, and it kind of gets to this issue of the, as Warren Buffett put it over weekend, kind of the moral judgments that we're making about these companies when he's saying, you know, it's not just you know, which ones do fossil fuels and which don't. But ESG starts to get into every aspect of behavior. In fact, let's take a quick listen to how he described Chevron and some of the other investments right now. I think Chevron's benefited society in all kinds of ways. And I think it continues to do so. And I think we're going to need a lot of hydrocarbons for a long time. And we'll be very glad we've got them. But I do think that the world's moving away from them, too. And, and I, that could change. Uh, I, I, I don't like making the moral judgments on stocks in terms of actually running the businesses. Yeah, so there you have it from uh, from the Oracle himself. So, Dan, let's talk about what you're launching here and how it's going to work and, and how lucrative do you expect it to be? We think this is a big market, Kelly. When you, when you think about the fleet vehicle market, there's 13 million fleet vehicles out there. We sell three, three and a half million a year. So it's a, it's a very big market and it's going to electrify. So the question is, you know, how do you take a complex process uh, going from a gasoline fleet to an electric fleet? How do you make that easy? And so our job at Merge is to do things like help select the right vehicles, figure out where the chargers go, what kind of chargers you need. How do you get the electric off of the grid and into the right spots to charge those vehicles? How do you monitor the vehicles? So that's the process we're going to bring to the equation. And, we, you know, obviously we think it's going to be a big market over time. Do we know for sure that electric vehicles are better for the environment if we take into account the whole production chain, the supply chain, the charging stations? I mean, that, that, that whole infrastructure? I think in aggregate it, it clearly is. And certainly if you're buying a vehicle, um, there's no question that an electric vehicle, depending on how it's powered, but... Um, it's anywhere from 50 to 100% lower CO2 in particulate. So it's, it's definitely better once you've bought that vehicle, the pieces that go into it. Um, upstream, I think uh, electric vehicles certainly have some manufacturing components that are carbon intensive, but net, 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 I think the electric vehicle is clearly a better CO2 or climate choice. So last question, what other kinds of investments might we expect you to make going forward? You know, if, if your traditional investor comes to you because you have such depth on, you know, the energy plays and the big oil firms, I mean, what should they expect now? Yeah, I think, I think you're going to see us do a couple things. One, we're thinking about places that folks aren't focused. So if you look at an energy transition play, it continues to be copper. 
right? Copper is in everything associated with the transition, windmills, batteries, EVs, et cetera. So we, we like copper and, and metals as a play. I think we're also going to look very closely, not, not necessarily the EVs themselves, but the infrastructure around it to us. That's, that's the underserved market. We may be a little overcapitalized on EVs. We're undercapitalized on services. Yeah, the picks and shovels for the gold rush kind of, kind exactly. of thing. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Dan, thanks so much. It's good to check in with you. We appreciate it. Thank you, Kelly. Dan Pickering with Pickering Energy Partners. Coming up, small business owners and Warren Buffett agree the costs are going up. We'll dig into the numbers and what it means for consumers next. And don't miss the CNBC Small Business Playbook tomorrow. Join some of the most trusted voices in the business to provide critical advice and vital resources to help owners overcome extraordinary obstacles and to stage a strong comeback. You can check out the full lineup and register now at CNBCEvents.com slash Small Business Playbook. We're back in a moment. Welcome back. Small businesses across the country are experiencing price hikes, and they're not the only ones. Here's what Warren Buffett had to say about rising costs at Berkshire Hathaway's annual meeting. We're seeing very substantial inflation. It's very interesting. I mean, we're raising prices. People are raising prices to us. uh, And it's being accepted. We've got nine home builders in addition to our manufactured housing thing. And then uh, operation, which is the largest in the country. So we really do a lot of housing. <laughs> the costs are just up, up, up. Steel costs, uh, you know, just every day, uh, they're, they're going up. And our Kate Rogers is here now with more on how Main Street is thinking about and dealing with these price hikes, Kate. Hey, Kelly. Well, costs are on the rise, and Main Street is, of course, taking notice. Nearly half of small business owners that we polled in our most recent CNBC SurveyMonkey small business survey for Q2 said the cost of raw materials would increase over the next six months. Now, leading the pack were those businesses in mining and construction, with 79% saying that raw materials would increase the most. Now, this compares to 30% of those who say that labor costs will rise and 18% that said the cost of capital would increase. Labor costs likely on the rise. As we all know, the job market is very tight. About a quarter of small businesses say they do plan to increase their workforce. That's up from 19% last quarter. But nearly the same amount say that they have open positions that they've been unable to fill for at least three months. We last asked this question in Q1 of 2020, and only 16% said that they were facing this same shortage. No surprise here, but as we see the economy reopen, those in accommodation and food services, they're facing the bigger shortage. About 34% have open positions, and 31% say that they plan to hire more over the next year. Kelly, back over to you. Which would all suggest that they're doing pretty well right now, all things considered. I mean, what do we know about the state of small business? So overall sentiment did increase to 45 for the score for this quarter. That was 43 in an all-time low last quarter. Mm-hmm. About 65% of small businesses, they, they say they can survive for at least a year. That was just over half last time we asked. And about a third, Kelly, say that their current business conditions are good. So slowly but surely, things seem to really be moving in the right direction. But, of course, still a long road to recovery. Yeah, and do we know, Kate, which are, I mean, obviously some are kind of in a better position than others. And I don't know if you're directly affected by COVID, if that means you're a restaurant and you're about to come out of this with blockbuster demand, or if that means that you're still saddled with debt and all these issues from trying to keep operating while things were really tough. 
The most common narrative I'm hearing from restaurants and retail in particular right now are that customers are coming back and they don't have enough employees to deal with all of that demand. There's a ton of pent up demand. We've heard it from basically every restaurant company that's reported earnings so far. So really, people are coming back. Stimulus, of course, has been a boost, but labor is really, really the top concern right now. Yep, absolutely. Kate, thanks so much. We appreciate it. Kate Rogers. That does it for The Exchange today. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.